Hello, and welcome to episode 192 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfor-Stewart. Before we jump in, I want to share two quick announcements. First, I recently released a free quiz, What's Your Delegation Downfall?, to help you determine what is holding you back from delegating most effectively. You can take this quiz for free at themodernmanager.com slash delegation dash quiz. Second, if you are on Instagram, I hope that you'll follow me. Since the start of 2022, I have been upping my Instagram game and sharing additional content as well as some personal posts, which I think you'll enjoy. You can find me by searching Mamie KS or check the show notes for both the quiz link and my Instagram handle. Now a warm welcome to RS, Laura K, Mary C, and Talia H to the Modern Manager membership. If you haven't yet explored the benefits of membership, I hope you'll take a moment to learn more about how membership can help you elevate your management skills. From episode transcripts, guest bonuses, and additional podcast content, to our members-only Slack group and private Q&A calls, I want to help you implement what you're learning on the show and be the best manager that you can be. Go to themodernmanager.com slash join to learn more. Now, today's guest is Colin Jewett. Colin is an industrial engineer, author, coach, and adventurer. He loves helping others rediscover the joy of learning and partnering with their brains to unlock limitless memory, boundless creativity, and unshakable focus. Colin and I talk about the process of learning, how to remember better, the relationship between learning and creativity, and so much more. Now here's the conversation. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. It is such a pleasure to talk with you today, Colin. I'm super excited to talk about how we learn and how memory works. This is a new topic for the show, so thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. All right, let's start at the high level. What is it that our brain does, this big thing that we call learning and memory? How does that all work? (laughs) That's a good question. I think it's hard to answer at a neuroscience level just because there's so much to it. So I tend to take a different direction, (laughs) which is a little bit more applied and practical. So uh, yeah, the the model that, that I use, so I'm a I'm an accelerated learning and memory coach. So I'm always working with people on specifically, like how do you improve your your learning and cognition for daily life and application, whether that's personal, professional. So if it doesn't get you results in your life, then it's not really something we, we tend to spend too much time on. Uh, and so as a result, I've kind of, I've created a model based on, you know, what's a useful understanding of, of learning that actually will help you in your daily life to change the way you behave and to learn more effectively. And I think one of the first things that you kind of need to understand about, about learning is the importance of curiosity, which is, you know, it kind of sounds like cliche, like, of course you need to be curious to to learn things, but I think people kind of overlook curiosity because I think for a lot of people, it's kind of hard to describe what that really is. But until you have that drive, pretty much anything that you try to learn, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. It's going to be painful. A lot of people have had really painful learning experiences. And that's one of the reasons why it's not understanding curiosity. So I think that's that's probably where I would want to start with just about anybody talking through what that is. So curiosity, I think of it a couple of different ways. One way to think about it is curiosity is your natural 
sense of wonder and your desire to understand yourself and the world around you. Another way to think about it is it's, it's the kind of art or natural ability, the innate ability to generate questions. Uh, and the reason I like to think of curiosity as, as that ability or innate drive to generate questions is because it helps us to understand how it actually connects to the learning process. So the model that, that I share with people and that I would use like for practical change in the way that you learn is understanding that it starts with curiosity. And that channels into creativity, which is something we should definitely talk about because I think that's really important in the modern workplace and and it's kind of hard to find and figure out. And then that goes into memory and then memory goes into knowledge and application. You with me so far? I am with you and I want to dive into each of those steps. So I'll take your lead. You tell me where we should go. Okay. Yeah, I definitely, I think we should start with the connection between curiosity and creativity. Because most people, when they think of creativity, they either think, well, I'm a creative person or I'm not a creative person. It's kind of like dichotomous, right? It's binary. You're either one or the other. And if you're not creative, well, that stinks for you. You're just, you kind of have to be relegated to a job where you do the same thing every day. And if you are creative, well, that means you go and you paint pictures and make music and that kind of (laughs) thing. And I think that's, that's a kind of misconception about creativity. There definitely is variation in natural creative ability across the population. Um, Most uh, cognitive and personality traits are normally distributed. So you're going to have some people who are way on like the extreme, a very small number of people in one direction or the other. You'll have a lot of people who are more towards the middle. But I would say that that's more of the distribution of creative capacity. So like some people have way more creative capacity than others and some have way less. Most people kind of have this middling amount but what I think is, is not utilized, it, I don't think people actually use their creative capacity that much because they don't know how to. So they have way more than they actually realize and they can't access it because that creativity is kind of like this nebulous thing that they can't describe. So the reason I bring that up is because I think that's where curiosity, the idea of curiosity being as this innate drive to understand the world around you and the ability to generate questions is really useful because creativity is actually your ability or your uh, innate drive to answer questions. There are lots of ways to think about it, but that's one way. And I think it's useful because it it helps you to understand why curiosity is so important. Because if you're not asking any questions, your brain has no reason to try to come up with answers to questions. And therefore you won't be creative. Does that make sense? Yes. And I've never thought of it that way, that creativity is a response to a trigger of some sort that gets your brain to think in new or different ways to try to tackle a challenge or a problem or make sense of something. So if you don't have that curiosity, if you're not trying to explore something or figure something out, then there's not an opportunity to tap into that portion of your brain that gets to think creatively. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's a a great way to think about it. And I think one other reason why people get really stuck when they think or try to be creative is because they start from a blank slate. They like, okay, I need to be creative. I need to come up with an original idea. (laughs) Right. And that's a really intimidating thing to do. Try to create something from nothing, but that's not really how creativity works. And that's not really how like any cognitive function works, it doesn't just like there, it doesn't just happen for no reason. There's always, it's always a response. There's always a reason for it occurring in the first place. And so uh, one thing I like to tell people is that creativity is not origination. 
it's combination. And that's, that's a really different spin than most people are used to. They, they're used to thinking, okay, creative people are, are people who come up with new ideas from nowhere. They just kind of like pull them out of the air. And that's not true. Creative people are people who take things that already exist, ideas that already exist, images that already exist, and they combine them in ways that people haven't seen before. But really it's taking things that already exist and they're just combining them in a new way. And so when we think of creativity that way, and I was also being answering questions, it kind of becomes formulaic in a sense, which I know some people kind of cringe when I say that. It's like creativity, it's not formulaic. You can't put it in a box, but you can describe like how it works, <laughs> right? And so if you want to be creative, really what you want to do rather than, you know, you know, starting with a blank piece of paper and just hoping something falls out onto it is you want to start with questions and then you want to think of ways that you could combine things that already exist in order to answer those questions in a way that hasn't been answered before. And that's what creativity really is. This makes so much sense. And I'm imagining that there are a lot of people going like, oh, I can do that part. <laughs> like I can take existing things and try and imagine how could they work together in new ways, which is so much less scary than, as you said, staring at a blank piece of paper, which even I, and I consider myself a very creative person. I went to art school and I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time crafting. Even I am like, I need source material too. And staring at a blank page is very scary. So this this is really, um, really helpful. But I want to I want to take this now and say, how does this relate then to the idea of learning and memory and application? And like, how does question asking and curiosity and creativity play into our ability to then learn and, and do something with that? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that. You, <laughs> I didn't know that you went to art school. I love that. I actually come, I'm an engineer, but I come from a family of artists. So my my brother and his wife are both artists. My sister is an artist, like professionally full-time. Um, so I grew up around artists, even though I'm not super, <laughs> I wouldn't describe myself as super artistic, but it's super cool to, to be around people like that all the time. But yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's a really important question for people who want to, okay, well, how do I, I, I get that idea, but then how do I apply it to my life? And it's exciting because it actually applies to like everything. So not only does it apply to how you learn, but it also applies to motivation, uh, which we should talk about. Uh, but I'll go to learning first. So with learning, so if you think about uh, what learning really is, learning is connecting new information to old information. That, that's essentially how your memory works. It's associative. And so uh, the only way that you can really attach something new is if you can see how it connects to what you already know. If it's too foreign, if it's too far out there, if there's no obvious connection at all, you won't remember it. It won't stick and therefore you won't be able to adapt on it. You won't be able to apply it. Uh, and you really can't, I don't, I don't know if you could really consider that to be learning at that point. It's kind of just like throwing something at a wall and it bounces right off, which a lot of people describe the learning process like that. It's like I stare at the page and my, my, my eyes see the words on the page, but they don't really go anywhere, right? A lot of people have had that experience. They feel like it's in one ear and out the other. And so this is where curiosity and creativity really come into play and how they're super important for how your memory works. Because if you think about what creativity is, like I said, it's combination, right? It's combining ideas, uh, existing ideas in new ways. And that's exactly what memory is. That's exactly what associative, like the associative nature of memory is. It's combining things in new ways. And, and making connections between ideas. And that's, that's so memory and, and creativity are, are deeply interconnected, connecting ideas that were previously seen as disparate or, or separate. And so when you're trying to remember something, 
if you're not making any connections to what you already know, if you're not saying like a question, a, a statement you can use, like fill in the blank, that's really helpful is when you're reading something or when you're exposed to something new, pause for a second and try to fill in the blank. So that's like blank and fill in the blank with something that you already understand. That's like this. This is why analogies and metaphors are so powerful when it comes to learning is because what analogies and metaphors do is they take a new concept and they put it into an, a familiar context. And that's what learning is really all about. Oh my gosh. There's so many things I want to say right now. <laughs> all right. We're going to start with this one, which is I really appreciate this framing of learning, of associating new things with old things that your brain was already comfortable with and how that is similar to this process of creativity of taking different things and combining them, right? That parallel makes a lot of sense. And it also makes me think that all the times I'm reading books and it says like at the end of the chapter, like write down, you know, your key takeaways or like think about XYZ question and process it. And I'm always just like, next page, that I really should just stop doing that and actually do that processing work as I'm reading because I read a ton of books and now I'm thinking, wow, how much am I not actually retaining because I'm sucking it up in the moment, but not taking the time to create those associations. And so, so much of it then just dissipates over, over time. Yeah, exactly. And, and if you think back to curiosity, asking questions, you can boil pretty much any question you ever ask down to a basic structure of how is this new idea similar to some like thing I already know or different from that thing I already know. That's what every question essentially boils down to is trying to find the similarities and differences be between things you know and things you don't or you're, you're unfamiliar with. And it's using that context of what we already know that we make we can extend our understanding to new things. That's that's the whole process we go through. And that's what like the smallest children do as they explore the world and they start to learn. That's that's how they build on their understanding. They're always building onto what starts out as just basic like sensory inputs, right? Is what they first have. That's all they have at the beginning is their sense of their, themselves and their basic sensory inputs. And then everything becomes a comparison, like compare and com contrast game. And that's learning. That's your entire life from then on. And I think one reason why people really struggle with learning, especially as they get older, is that they kind of lose sight of that. And they start to try to learn things in a very disconnected, disparate way. So like one example, uh, and without using questions, right? So like when you're in school, oftentimes uh, in traditional education, students are kind of told like, hey, this is what you need to, to put in your head. <laughs> well, that's not really how people learn, right? We don't like, it's, it's really important for you to be asking the question yourself, how is this relevant to me? How is this similar to what I know? How is it different from what I know? And if you're not asking that question and somebody is just like, hey, here's a piece of information, shove it into your head, it's not going to work that way. And so that's why it gets really counterproductive. But we, we are trained through that kind of education process. Well, learning has to be something that's painful. It has to be something that's, you know, bang your head against a wall until maybe the information sticks. And it's like, no, it doesn't have to be like that. In fact, it doesn't work that way. You have to be asking questions. You have to be comparing, contrasting. You have to be forming metaphors, analogies, everything like that, and making creative connections or else you really can't make things stick. And so you're always having to do that at some level. It's just the, the less you are doing that, the more painful and longer it's going to take. So I'm wondering about different types of content or knowledge or skills or information that we are trying to learn and if this approach 
is kind of consistent across the board. So, for example, like there are times where we have to learn particular content for work where we have to like read this document and like remember all these statistics or uh, kind of internalize the latest report. And then there's things like I want to learn a new language and maybe that could be for work or it could be for personal activities or I just need to learn these people's names because I'm facilitating a workshop or I'm at a networking event and I'm meeting a bunch of people and I want to remember who they are. Or I need to learn how to write JavaScript. And so I have to learn this new code. So are there different approaches that work better for different kinds of learning that has to happen? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say, yes, there are, but they all boil down to essentially the same, like how learning works to begin with. And so you can kind of figure this out for yourself if you spend time and and think about okay, well, it's always about putting new things into some sort of familiar context and then finding the differences, finding the similarities. So that's what we're always doing. It can look different though with different skills. Like you said, like some things you're you're really trying to get content and that's more of information into your head. It's always information, but I think people will know what I'm talking about when you say it, like you're reading something, you're listening to something versus maybe like physical skills, like dancing, you know, that's that's kind of different than reading a book or trying to learn a language. It's actually kind of the same in your brain, but (laughs) practically speaking, when we're learning them, it's going to look a little bit different. But what I'm always asking is, first of all, asking why you're learning something is critical, uh, especially for adult learners. You'll find that really, really, really young children don't ask why and they don't need to, but there's a certain, maybe not an explicit age, but there's a certain threshold that gets crossed at some point where you start asking why. And once you kind of cross that bridge, you can never go back. (laughs) It's really important after that point to answer, why am I learning this? But then like, yeah, if you're learning a programming language, firstly, why am I learning this? Why am I the one learning it? Is this something I actually want to learn? How does this fit into the context of my life? How is it going to change things for me? What specifically am I trying to do with this? I've heard you uh, in previous podcast episodes talk about that. Like, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? It's a really great question to ask. uh, And that's super important. But one thing to think about when when learning like a physical skill that might be different, for example, and this is something that I think adults a lot of times get out of practice with and they don't even realize they have these abilities, but uh, you have what I would call internal sensory abilities. So this would be essentially your ability to imagine. So if you think about your imagination as a child, internal visualization, being able to see things in your mind, being able to what I would call internalize an experience, replicate an experience, a sensory experience inside your mind. That's kind of like using your mind's eye, everything like that. That is an extraordinarily powerful tool for learning because what that is, it's essentially taking um, an experience that maybe you haven't had yet or trying to imagine it. And you're putting it in the most personal context of all, which is inside your own mind, trying to use your body, trying to use all of your senses. And so what that might look like, like practically speaking, is if, if I want to learn, let's say a dance what you can do with that is actually try to imagine in your mind what each movement feels like. What are all the the senses that are going to be engaged when I'm doing that movement? What does it feel like to shift my weight back to that foot and then move like trying to imagine that? And the more realistically you can imagine something in your mind, the better you are going to be able to learn that. And you can actually practice that skill without ever really doing it. You could practice dancing on the bus without dancing. (laughs) You can practice it inside of your mind, but that's an actual skill set, like building up the ability 
to imagine doing something is super powerful. And, and there's been studies on this too. There's, there's things called mirror neurons, which is essentially when you watch somebody do something, the neurons that would fire, if you did that thing fire, when you watch somebody else do it to a certain extent, it's not exactly the same, but it's like just watching somebody will cause you to have a very similar experience to actually performing that action yourself. And you can trigger that kind of response in your own mind by imagining watching it, imagining doing it. So that's something that I think adults like just don't do <laughs> for the most part. Most people I talk to are like, I've never even thought about doing that, but it's extraordinarily powerful. And I think that's one of the reasons why kids learn better typically is because they do that naturally. And it's only over time uh, that they kind of forget and stop doing that. Wow. That is super cool. I often will like imagine myself when I have to speak at a, you know, an event or something and at a conference. And I like imagine myself like being on the stage and saying my speech, but I've never thought about trying to do that with other types Mm -hmm. of things in terms of learning. So super cool. I'm excited to try that. And I have a, a very particular question, which is, there's this model that there are auditory learners and visual learners and kinesthetic learners and oral learners. And do you buy into that? Or and if yes, like what does that mean for for each of us? And if no, why not? <laughs> uh, I love that you asked that question. I just wrote an article about it yesterday. <laughs> so yeah, that's the VARC model. Um, it was essentially, it was developed by a guy named Neil Fleming, I think in 1987. And it, he proposed that yeah, there were four different major types or styles of learning, visual, auditory, reading, and writing, and kinesthetic were the, the four types, which is what you get VARC, visual, auditory, read, write, and then K stands for kinesthetic. And there, there's a lot of validity to, to the model in the sense that people do have natural preferences, like they will lean towards one of those. So if you go out on people, like talk to people on the street and you ask them which of the four that they lean towards, they will probably pick one. They won't be like, Oh, I've never thought about that before. I don't really fit in one of those categories. Maybe they'll say that, but most people will actually tell you one and they'll lean towards one. So that is kind of where this comes from. It's like, if you watch people, people will have preferences that they'll lean towards. However, I think (laughs) this is kind of like the caveat here. I think that, that that idea of learning styles has really spread in a counterproductive way. And the reason I say that is because people will pigeonhole themselves into thinking I learn this way when the truth is they actually learn in all of those ways. Like all of your senses are involved and the more senses you can get involved with learning, the more effective it is, regardless of what your preference is. And there's actually been studies done on this where they have people who say they identify as one of these learning models and then they use one of the other ones. Like they force them to try to do something in one of the other ones. And they've shown no correlation between people being better using the one that they said they prefer versus using another one. So that's really interesting. Like (laughs) the preferences don't necessarily translate into performance at all. Those things aren't correlated. So when it comes to learning styles, I'll say, yes, people have preferences, but do those preferences actually mean that that's the only way you can learn or even that you learn technically better that way? No, not really. Overall, the more senses you can engage, regardless of what preference you have, uh, the better you're going to learn something. So it's better to have visual inputs and auditory inputs versus just auditory, for example. Oh, that is super cool. And of course, like makes a lot of sense, right? Like the more we can provide, the better. And we can then tap into more people's preferences, which probably just makes them feel 
more comfortable, right, in the learning process. Right. Okay, so let's go back to this idea of motivation because there are so many times where we have to learn something for work that may or may not be the top of our list of things that we want to spend our time learning. And so what is this connection between motivation and learning? Okay, uh, this is a this is a big topic, and <laughs> I'll, I'll try to be concise because I know we don't have forever. But there are not that many things, at least that I know of, that can be described as innate to humans. So there's I don't know if you've heard of this this term tabula rasa before. I probably butchered the pronunciation there, but there's like a theory at some point anyway that people kind of start out as blank slates. So that's what that means, and then the learning process is essentially like adults pouring into kids and filling them with knowledge and, and, you know, painting on that slate, I guess, or writing on it. And that's kind of like how you develop. That is pretty much wrong. (laughs) Uh, For the most part, I'd say one reason I say that is because learning in general is a personal journey of discovery. And that's a really important to understand because you can't give somebody a personal learning journey or personal journey of discovery. You can't like hand that to somebody. You can't give them that in a book. So regardless of what you try to do as a teacher, you can't just like, it's not like the matrix where you can just plug something in their head and funnel your knowledge in. Like it's something that learning is actually something that has to be undertaken personally. And it's going to be different for every person. And that's important because if you think about like um, the idea of learning or teaching being like filling an empty vessel, like that's not really how it works at all. It's more akin to like fanning a flame that's already there. And just really being a resource and providing an environment that's conducive to it. And the, th- the same thing, the reason I bring that up in regards to motivation is because it's kind of the same thing. So motivation, people think of motivation as being like this really elusive th- force. It's like sometimes you have it, sometimes you don't. Hopefully it'll come on the right days kind of thing. But there, there are ways to think about it that make make a lot more sense and make it a lot more predictable how that's going to work. One thing I've heard you mention this in a, in a previous episode uh, is kind of like the behaviorist uh, perspective. In other words, it's this idea that motivation is really just our response to stimuli or, uh, you know, that's where rewards and punishments come from, like that idea. So if you want more motivation, you just need to increase the incentives. That's either through adding reinforcement, uh, which would be rewards, or punishing or taking away something you want or whatever. And that's like how we think of like, that's how you motivate people. Right. And it's like, no, not really. (laughs) So that that's half true. Um, It's half true because and studies have shown this very conclusively and repeatedly over the past hundred years, though. I don't know for some reason it's not common knowledge, but that approach of rewards and punishments works really, really, really well for quantitative type of tasks. So for example, the original experiments that BF Skinner did uh, for operant conditioning using rewards and punishments were primarily done on pigeons, right? And it's like, peck this light and then we'll give you food. And they found that they could get them to like, they could program these creatures to perform certain behaviors using rewards and punishments that way. The same is true of humans with quantitative tasks. And this is why things like slot machines and gambling are so addictive is because they use that a type of reinforcement that's called variable ratio reinforcement. In other words, it's like for every random number of times you perform a certain action, you get reinforced. And that gives you like this internal drive of 
Like maybe next time I'll get reinforced. And so you pull the lever again. If you're talking about sl slot machines, maybe next time I'll get the jackpot. You never know when it's going to happen, but you know it's going to happen at some point. So that will drive you. All that to say that is really good for quantitative tasks. Like you want somebody to press a button over and over and over again. Like that's the way to do it. Give them more rewards, threaten them with punishment, that kind of thing. It breaks down once you get to higher levels of complexity. And whenever you get beyond rudimentary skill level, like where you need more cognitive function. Like if you need creativity, that's the wrong way to go. And in fact, if you try to you know, use rewards and punishment to produce more creative responses or get somebody to learn something faster, the exact opposite will happen. This has been proven over and over again. Like you can find countless studies on this that if you try to reinforce people to be more creative, if you try to reinforce them to qualitatively perform better or do something better, their performance will suffer. Well, I'm super curious. Let's talk about like the, the connection to learning and the so what. Okay. Uh, so when it comes to learning, if you think about what we talked about with curiosity and creativity, so those are some of the things I would say are innate. In other words, people have a natural drive, an innate drive to understand themselves and the world around them. That's what curiosity is. And you don't have to teach that. Like a child is born and they're immediately curious about the world. That's just there. And it's really important. It's a, it's a survival instinct, right? If you don't understand the world around you, you're going to get eaten by a tiger. <laughs> so it's really important. And that is one of the two essential drivers of motivation. So the two drivers that I would say kind of go behind this idea of motivation are one is the desire to understand the world and yourself. And that's curiosity. That's one driver of motivation. The other driver of motivation is to embody what you learn, to manifest, I would say manifest truth. So curiosity is a hunger for truth. And I would call it a desire for responsibility or responsibility is the desire to manifest that truth, to embody it, to act upon it. And the, those are the two subcomponents and drivers of motivation. So if you want to, if you're wondering, Hey, why am I not motivated? You are motivated. It's just that you, you might be having those, those motivating factors working against you. So for example, if you feel unmotivated, look at first curiosity, your desire for truth and to understand truth. How are you scratching that itch? If you are scratching that itch by going on social media, essentially just like consuming a bunch of information uh, and it doesn't have to be social media, it could be anything. You can think of that as kind of like if instead of eating hard, nutritious food, you just drank soda all the time. And if you replace what you need with something that mimics it and, and tricks your body into thinking it's what you need, but it's not actually what you need, uh, that's what addiction is. That's where addiction comes from. What happens is not only do you suffer because you're not getting what you need, you actually start to lose the ability to get what you need for yourself. And you see that with all addictions and that's, you know, where a lot of mental disorders come from. And that's the same thing that happens with motivation. It's driven by curiosity and the desire to manifest that, uh, the knowledge, which is kind of creativity. And if you're scratching the itch the wrong way through instant gratification or just cheap sensory inputs that are not really giving you the learning that you need, but they're kind of scratching the itch, you'll find your motivation suffers, your attention suffers, your desire to do anything suffers. And it's just like replacing food with some sort of drug that doesn't actually meet your needs, but it makes it tricks your brain into thinking that you're meeting those needs. That's why people are, are quote unquote, unmotivated. Wow, there's so much there that I wish we could unpack more deeply, but unfortunately, <laughs> we're out of time. So we'll have to save that for another conversation. And 
for now, to wrap us up, Colin, can you tell us about a great manager that you had and what made this person so fantastic? Yeah, uh, sure. So my my first job was as was as an engineer, and uh, my manager at that job was really great. His name was Jay. I think one of the reasons why he was a great manager is because he let me he let me find problems and solve them for myself rather than just telling me what to do, <laughs> which kind of goes along with everything we just talked about, right? Oh, yes. And something that so many managers struggle with, right? Giving people the freedom to figure things out on their own. So amazing. And where can people learn more about you and keep up with your work? Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of places. I'm just going to pitch one uh, so people don't get overwhelmed. I teach a cohort, live cohort-based course on this kind of stuff at maven.com. So if you go to maven.com, click courses. My course is called Discover Your Inner Super Learner. Cohort two is live right now. So you can't join right now, but you could join the wait list. Uh, for the next one, which will probably be in, in six months or so. Uh, but yeah, we dive really deep into how to learn more effectively, how to use that understanding to be motivated, to kind of hack your motivation and get things done, be more effective in your life, be more organized, all of those things. But we take it back to core principles, kind of like the root of all of it. And that's that's what makes it work. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was super fascinating. And I definitely learned stuff today. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> thank you. Colin has shared a super amazing guest bonus. He is providing access to his seven-part video series titled Unlock Your Three Brain States to help you discover the three critical brain states and unlock hyper-focused and endless creative potential. This guest bonus is available to members of the Modern Manager community at the Sprout level or above. To become a member so that you can get Colin's bonus and dozens more, go to themodernmanager.com slash join. If you work for a nonprofit or government agency, you get 20% off of any membership level. All the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit Meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at MamieKS.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.